Morning Pastor podcast is brought to you by partnership with Missio Alliance and Kairos Partnerships. Good morning, JR. Morning, Doug. Almost Christmas. I know. The end of Advent. Just a few days away. The waiting is just about over. Yeah. 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 So I think it'd probably be appropriate for us to, 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 to like kind of peel back the curtain and talk about what are we doing the weeks, you know, kind of in between New Year's and Christmas or Christmas and New Year's. Yeah. Yeah. So we talked about Christmas Eve and how that can be hard and somewhat lonely yeah. for pastors. But what does it look like, you know, once we get over that hump, there is maybe a little bit of a, you know, a lull and helpful time to rest and catch our breath before we go into the new year. So what does that look like for you? Are you going anywhere, hanging out here? What does that look like for you? Yeah, we uh we we keep it pretty low key. Uh my my parents live about an hour and probably about an hour and a half away. So normally Christmas morning we get up, the kids the kids it's so great having teenage kids right now because they're not up at the crack of dawn like bugging us. It's like we're waking them up like come on guys, let's go. We got come on, stuff. It's noon. Yeah, it's time. Um but yeah, we'll we'll have uh breakfast with 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 Mayor's family um pretty close they, they live only about 15 minutes away and then we pack up the car and we head out to Lancaster, uh the home of the Amish and the smorgasbord. Um, and my mom just puts this huge meal together every year. And so we hang out there for a night and a day. Uh, my brother, he's out there, his family. And so he's got, re- he's got young kids. The oldest is, uh, eight. So we have a ball with them. Um, yeah, they're we just, it's fun watching the kids get real excited and, you know, the parents, you know, both, both sides, it's just, it's kind of filled with family. And then the rest of the week, um, yeah, I, we, we go on hikes together. Uh, my son and I, we, we will, we will fly fish a bit. Uh, it'll be cold, but we're going to do it anyways. Cause that's just what we do in that time off. And, and my son wrestles. So he'll be at practice every morning wow. from seven 30 to 10. Oh my. Over Christmas break. Lovely. Yeah. yeah. Lovely. How about you, man? What are you up to? Well, my parents live in Phoenix, and so we're going to be heading out. We don't always get to see them. Uh, we don't get to see them all that often, but we're going to head out. And then my brother and his family are driving to Phoenix, so we're all going to meet there. We're flying on Christmas morning. Talk about kind of weird. Huh. Is heading to the the airport Christmas early Christmas morning and flying all day Christmas. Uh, we'll celebrate our family Christmas kind of on 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 New Year's Eve morning. Sorry, Christmas Eve morning, and then we'll celebrate Christmas out there with them, um, with all of all of them on the twenty seventh. So, yeah, so it'll be a lot of fun, and it's it's chaos, but it's also reading and sleeping in and enjoying time together. Uh, sometimes we get to see people we know out there, um, reading good books. So it's gonna it's gonna be a great time. We're looking forward to to just having that space. We've been looking forward to it for months. It's been a long time since we've seen our family. So you mentioned some good books. Are there particular ones that you're hoping to digest? Yeah. So I'm reading this great book by David Brooks. I'm a big fan of David David Brooks, New York, New York Times uh, columnist um, called The Second Mountain. And it's about we, we spend the first part of our life reaching the first mountain of striving and effort and accomplishment and success. And our identity is defined by what we do or what other people think about us. And he said, then we hit some sort of value whether it's failure or morose or malaise. And the second mountain, though, is where we live. People that hit the second mountain is they live on a cause beyond themselves. They realize that they're rooted to commitments, whether it's marriage or to a community or a faith uh, tradition. And he's just, he's such a lucid author, but he's just delving deeply into his own life of how he's had to look to his own second mountain. Uh, I'm really loving it. I mean, I knew it'd be good, but I'm kind of surprised how good it is. So I'm just savoring that going slowly through that. I'm also savoring uh surprise, surprise, a Spurgeon biography, no which, which has been way. wonderful. Do you know, do you, um, do you know much about that guy? I'm learning. I'm learning <laughs> a lot about him. So I'm actually learning a ton of new things I did not know about. Oh, him. cool. Uh, so really enjoying that. And then a Dallas Willard uh, kind of, dictionary reference almanac of all the themes and topics that Willard has addressed. So it's thematically laid out. It was someone's D-min dissertation. And uh, so, yeah, those are the books that I'm I'm really looking forward to to diving into. So how about you? You got any on the docket? Yeah, the Bible. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Super spiritual one. <laughs> the Bible. Uh, the Bible. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm still... Not work- a bad one. Not, Not a, a bad, bad one. one. Yes, we highly recommend <laughs> it. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be finishing up the patient firmament of the yeah, church. I'm like, great dude, book. I am loving, loving, loving that book. Good. And then I'm also, 
uh, I will I will finish up um, the ruthless elimination of hurry uh, by John Mark Comer. Great, and so I've I've enjoyed that one too. Um, I'm actually reading that with a with a young gentleman from our church, and uh, it's really interesting. Um, he's in his 20s, and so it's fascinating the way both of us are processing that. Mm. Um, and I've been just really grateful, grateful for that. And then uh, this time of year, I always bring back in the name of Jesus that I, I right. read that yearly, usually the the week in between uh, or early on in January. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, you know, we were joking about the Bible. That is fantastic. We we love that. Yes. Uh, in fact, we have a guest coming on soon to talk about the importance of that, which we're really excited about. Um, but... Uh, one of the things that I learned a few years ago, and I started a long time ago, is I set a goal to write out, to handwrite in four different notebooks, all the Gospels. And it's taken me months, but I am just started chapter 22 of Matthew. So I'm kind of down the home stretch um, of just Matthew. And then I've got three more notebooks over there, green notebooks, and each one will be handwritten. So it's been fantastic, not for me to get through it and say, hey, look what I did, slowing down to handwrite it out, I'm noticing details I've never seen when I read the story. So like this morning, I'm reading the story of um, uh, Jesus when he cursed the, the fig tree, and I thought he passed it, but there was a detail it said, and he saw it uh, across the road and went over to it to mm-hmm. see if it had figs, but instead it just had leaves. I just thought Jesus had just happened to pass by, but that he was intentionally going to the other side because he was hungry. I knew he was hungry, but kind of going out of his way. That's a little detail I never would have picked up on yeah. had I not gone through uh, hand writing it out. So it's been slow and it's a marathon thing, but it's super cool to really... I can't go fast because my hand can't go fast when I'm writing. And I'm just loving just kind of putting it in uh, in crawl mode. There's, some, through. there's something so important about, I think, even just as people who have so many different technologies at our fingertips to be able to slow down and do practices like that, I think. To handwrite something. Yeah. Is, it's almost to be a lost, analog in a digital world. It's almost a lost art. I mean, yeah. it's funny because you gave me one of those. And the green notebooks, for those of you that are interesting, what that what are wondering why he said a green notebook i believe aren't they from the irs or something yeah from like the 50s which is awesome yeah, yeah you, they were they were uh i think there was like overstock like too many of them and they didn't know what to do with them they're gonna weird. burn them and destroy them they're like, let's just sell them so they're like ledger books they're from awesome the irs yeah from the yeah. 50s or 60s or something like that yeah because i i started because you gave me a few of those books gosh it must have been five years ago and yeah. I, I ended up writing out almost almost finished the gospel of mark oh no uh, way I, in cool. fact it, like you mentioned i was like oh i need to read visit that yeah, and finish yeah. it up so punch it out man yeah i gotta do it yeah uh, in fact that sounds like what i'll finish up for my christmas but uh, yeah there there was something there's something really important about that i think and the fact that the irs actually had overstock which is <laughs> surprising what? what the government didn't <laughs> yeah. didn't count things correctly uh, they they wasted stuff Wait you're a kidding minute. Me. anyway on. moving on yeah. moving on um yeah so tell us uh, kind of the schedule the next few weeks with yeah. mmp yeah first of all uh folks thank you so much it's been a really 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 fantastic year um yeah. we've just watched our we've watched the community grow and we're yeah. so grateful for that uh the stories we're hearing the encouragement um it's just great and yeah, so what we're doing is we have this week, um, right before Christmas and we have the following week and we're really excited about next week. It's, it's a really, it's a good conversation to think through how do we enter into healthy rhythms in 2020. Yeah. And so you're not going to want to miss that. And then we're going to take off for two weeks. Uh, our producer, uh, the fabulous Joel Imbalan, yeah, he's absolutely out of, fabulous. He's heading uh, back home to the Philippines with his family, um, his family, his, his dad's from the Philippines. And so they're, everybody's going. So that's a long flight uh, and he'll be there for 10 days. And so we also just feel like it's good to take a break. Yeah. Um, and then we're going to be right back into the full swing of things uh, two weeks into January. And we're super excited. We've got a great lineup already. Uh, we've been kind of working ahead some. And so we're really excited about what's next. Um, yeah, I think too, uh, a couple things would be really helpful for us. If you could take a minute and uh, just go on iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you are, uh, and just leave us, um, just if you could give us a, a 
you know, whatever stars you feel like giving us, but even just leave us some feedback, please, please. If you have questions, thoughts, topics, um, feel free to shoot JR or myself an email. Um, we'd love to hear from you. Um, and even if you're just like struggling in this season and, and are just looking for just some affirmation, uh, you know, feel free to check out all the, the backlogged episodes that we have, um, or just reach out and give JR or, JR or myself uh, a quick email. We'd love to just encourage you. Um, so yeah, I think that's really all we got. We're looking forward to the interview that we have today. And so with that, we'll see you guys soon. Rich Philotus is the lead pastor at New Life Fellowship Church. In 2013, Rich succeeded Peter Scazzaro, the internationally renowned author and speaker as lead pastor. New Life is a wonderfully diverse church with over 75 nations in the heart of Queens, New York. Rich was born and raised in the East New York section of Brooklyn, just 20 minutes from New Life. He graduated Nyack College and has his Master's of Divinity from Alliance Theological Seminary. When Rich is not reading, he is cheering on his beloved Mets, Knicks, and Jets. He is married to Rosie and they have two children. Enjoy this wonderful conversation with Rich Philotus. Rich, it's so great to have you here. I'm uh, I'm really grateful. I know you and I have known each other for the last several years, but uh, we're really glad for you to be on the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast with us here. I'm so glad to be here. So, um, for those of uh, the for those of us who are listening who don't know you and your story, just give us a brief kind of ministry arc of your own journey there in New York. Yeah, um, born and raised in New York City, um, and Became a Christian at 19 years old with about 15 other family members in one night uh, in this storefront church in Brooklyn, Spanish-speaking Pentecostal church, and uh, really transformed my life and my family's life. And soon after, uh, started preaching uh, uh, in the streets of Brooklyn, organizing street services, uh, and uh, just sensed the burden from God to, to preach. And soon after that, went to uh, Nyack College, a Christian college here in, in New York. Uh, and upon graduating there, went to seminary and then got a job right out of seminary, uh, leading a young adult ministry at this church called the Brooklyn Tabernacle uh, in Brooklyn. <laughs> and uh, it'd be strange if it was in Queens. <laughs> and, uh, and so Brooklyn Tabernacle in Brooklyn, I did um, young adult and college ministry for a few years there. And then, uh, and then uh, as I was there, I heard about this church. I really heard about a book uh, called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Pete Scazzaro. And I, I, I was really drawn to the contemplative traditions to the Desert Fathers, to people like Thomas Merton and Henry Nowen. And then I come across this book and so drawn by the content of it. And then I look at the back cover and see, oh, this guy's in Queens. This guy, mm. this church is 15 minutes from me. Mm. And um, it just so happened that I connected with one of the pastors who was here at New Life. We had a, a lunch and uh, talking about how to get our college and young adult ministries together. And after about a two hour conversation, uh, he invited me to apply for a pastoral staff position. There was one open here. And I was so drawn by what I was seeing. I said, you know what, I'll, I'll apply to it. Uh, and uh, about six months later, I was at New Life uh, uh, overseeing small group ministry and as a preaching pastor. And uh, I was there for a couple of years when Pete Scazzaro and the elders came to me and said, hey, Pete's going to be transitioning out of the senior pastor role. And we think um, you're the person to succeed him. Mm. Would you mind going through a process with us? And the process was four years in total. Uh, but I came into the process about a year and a half into that and um, had our process behind the scenes. And in uh, 2013, became the lead pastor here. So I'm in my seventh year. And uh, just for those who don't know a little bit uh, about New Life, we're 32 years old. Pete planted it in 1987 with um, uh, you know, a couple of people. And uh, we're in we're in Queens now, one of the more diverse areas in the world, uh, in Elmhurst, Queens. Uh, National Geographic has said we are uh, at the most diverse zip code in the world. So we have over seventy five nations represented in our church. One hundred and twenty three languages spoken at the nearby hospital uh, down the block from our church. And um, 
yeah, our church has slowly and uh, steadily just uh, grown over the years by God's grace. So, um, yeah, I'm seven years into it. The church is still here. Uh, and um, not many people want to be this, the person who follows a guy who's really well known and an author there. But by God's grace, um, here we are. So that's a little bit about uh, what I've been up to over the past 20 plus years. Yeah, well, Doug and I absolutely love uh, emotionally healthy spirituality, emotional health, emotionally healthy, uh, you know, leadership. I mean, there's just so many good things that Scazzaro has done. I know you've benefited from that, and you've benefited not just from books, but firsthand mentoring, which is which is wonderful. Talk about some of the benefits. What is it like to be mentored uh, by someone? Uh, well, Jim Simbola first, and then also uh, Pete. Um, you've had some some good mentors in your life. Uh, with Jim Simbola, who was at Brooklyn, I, I wouldn't say I was really mentored by him. Um, I, I got in his office from time to time, uh, to get <laughs> some, to, Hey Rich, I need you to do this. Uh, so that was about, that was the extent of my mentoring. So I, I wouldn't say I was mentored by Jim Simbola. Okay. Uh, but I, I've been mentored by Pete though, uh, for the past 11 years. And it, what is it like, you know, uh, Pete is a discipling machine, uh, in the sense that, um, he is going to help you follow Jesus well. He is going to ask you questions um, that you might not ask of yourself. Uh, he is going to, and he had created a culture where integrity and pastoral faithfulness and prayerfulness was to be expected, not as a heavy yoke, but as an invitation to receive. Uh, and so I, I remember my first year uh, when I got here, Pete, Pete led a small, an intensive small group for leaders or about maybe 12, 15 leaders in the basement of his house uh, every year for, I mean, 20 plus years in a row. And he'd do it for about eight months, uh, every two weeks. And uh, when I got here, he, my, my wife and I, Rosie and I, we were part of this group and he was teaching us about the interior life and he and his wife, Jerry, discipling us on uh, prayer, relationships, sexuality. I mean, uh, there was nothing untouched <laughs> in, in terms of what he covered um, in terms of the discipleship spectrum. And so being in this culture here where um, rhythms of rest and prayer and preparation and theological preparedness, that was just the air that we breathe in. To give you a sense as to um, what I, when I first was interviewing for the position, uh, in 2008, Pete said to me, uh, Rich, there's only one way that you'll be fired from being a pastor at New Life. And so, you know, we were at this diner. I kind of stood up straight just to make sure I didn't miss this part of the meeting. And he said, if you don't keep Sabbath, you will be fired. Whoa. And I was like, well, you, this doesn't sound right. You mean if I don't work, I'll get fired. And he said, no, if you don't keep Sabbath, you will be fired because you won't have the life with God to sustain the work you're doing for God. And um, that gives you a sense as to how I got into new life and the culture of new life. And, um, and so there, I mean, I've received many gifts um, uh, and challenges uh, being mentored by Pete and discipled by Pete over the last decade. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, would you mind speaking to some of those challenges? I know that, uh, following in the footsteps of the guy that started something really, you know, really big and really important. And just that, that has such uh, weight to it can sometimes feel kind of overwhelming. Um, so would you mind speaking to some of those challenges? I just, I mean, I know I'm sitting next to the guy that I followed and, uh, you know, it's, I think in certain relationships and certain churches, it can be a really difficult transition and there can just be some hard things. Well, I think the challenges were on two levels. One, just personally, internally, and then two, um, Pete. <laughs> so I'll, I'll talk about them very pl uh, plainly and clearly. And, and I, Pete knows all about this here. So this is not a secret. Um, internally, um, the challenge when, when I became stepped into this role, I was, I was turning, I was 32, turning 33, I'm 40 years old. And so, um, uh, you know, there's just a lot of, I'm still trying to find my voice. I'm still trying to understand who I am and who I'm not. This is about John the Baptist's, John the Baptist's words in the gospel of John, where he says, 
Uh, I am not the Messiah. I am not this. I'm not that. I am a voice in the wilderness. And John the Baptist knows who he's not, and he knows who he is. And so that was a that continues to be an ongoing journey for me. But at 32 years old, taking over a church from a guy who is nationally, internationally known, um, best-selling author and such, uh, there was a real need for me to feel like I have to prove myself, uh, to make a name for myself, to to show that the church isn't uh, taking a step back by putting me in here. Uh, And so that was just the internal challenges of my need to perform and do something great. Um, And so the other internal challenge uh, is one of of finding my voice in terms of just being differentiated from Pete and differentiation as uh, there's so many great definitions. Like my definition of it is staying close to myself while remaining close to another person, especially in times of high anxiety and um, the, uh, the ability to stay close to myself and not be enmeshed with Pete or cut off from Pete. This is just kind of family systems theory talk here. Um, has been an ongoing journey that I don't know if I um, fully entered into me being uh, more differentiated with Pete in particular, probably in the last year. Um, And it came out during um, the process of me writing a book. And I I mean, I'm happy to go into how I had to differentiate myself from Pete there. Um, But uh, so that's just my own internal challenge. Then the the external challenges are, um, which, which ultimately come back to my interior life myself is there were times initially when, um, when we had the transition, Pete was really trying to build out emotionally healthy leadership, emotionally healthy discipleship. And uh, we didn't have the administration to really support another ministry like his that was really exploding in a way that uh, we needed. And so the, the, the staff as it was, as, as it existed back then, didn't have the strength to lead him to, to, to provide the support. And there were a couple of times when Pete um, had a lot of anxiety and about that and frustration and anger about that in times where he would tell me uh, and which would frustrate the mess out of me. Uh, and I'd be upset. And I would say uh, over the course of the seven years that I've been in this role, there are probably three times, only three where Pete, um, as I like to say, you know, he, he crossed an emotional boundary. He emotionally vomited on me. Um, and I had to do the work of calling him back or having a conversation and saying, you know, when I took the job, I wasn't really looking for that. Um, and what I love about Pete is he is, uh, so humble and repentant and, um, has no problem saying rich, forgive me. I, that's not what I want to do in this role here. Um, and, and so uh, some of his anxieties, the challenges of managing his anxiety, which is really managing my anxiety and, mm. and self-regulating. So at the end of the day, it's all on me, my ability to be a non-anxious presence, even in the face of his anxiety or whoever's anxiety. Um, but those are some of the initial challenges that um, I experienced that, uh, quite frankly, um, I don't experience those with him anymore. Um, but those were some of the challenges early on. Yeah. So you've got challenges with an important, uh, well-known successor. And then the challenges that just come with pastoring churches, my goodness, like big or small, there's all sorts of stuff there. You have been so purposeful in terms of your own rhythm of life or rule of life. And I imagine a lot of that is to counter some of those challenges or to make sure they're, uh, guardrails or training wheels or whatever, met- whatever metaphor you want to use. What are the elements of your rule of life and how did you develop those? Uh, the rule, uh, the, the rule language comes out of our, uh, our own congregation. In 2008, we, we moved to like formally a congregational rule of life that came out of, you know, monasticism and built on the rhythms of prayer, rest, relationships, and work. And so we have a rule as a congregation. What are the rhythms, practices, and relationships we want to give ourselves to as a congregation? And then it is out of that space where we invite people to craft their own personal role in which there's a lot of overlap, but it's distinct to who you are. Uh, And that this comes out of monastic practice as well. And, uh, and so my, my 
uh, personal rule of life, which flows out of our congregational rule of life, has those four elements of prayer, rest, relationships, and work. And um, the, the, I, I think there are, when I look at each of those areas, and, I, and this is a good time actually to do a rule at the end of each year, instead of doing like New Year's resolutions, I revisit my rule of life. And um, there are a few practices, rhythms, and relationships that have anchored me. One is Sabbath, just uh, the weekly rhythm of a 24-hour period with no have-tos, with no shoulds, which results in renewal. Um, and every Friday night from 6 p.m. to Saturday night, 6 p.m., um, I'm done with my work. There's no more sermon prep. There's no more emails. There's no more phone calls. There's no more planning and strategizing. It's now a time to put all that stuff away, um, to be with my family, to be with friends, to, to watch a good movie, to nap, to pray, to read, um, you know, Jerry, you've been influenced by Eugene Peterson significantly, you know, uh, praying and playing is really mm-hmm. the, the summary of Sabbath for me. Which means you don't watch your Knicks, right? Because your Knicks are always going to put you in a bad place. Yeah, yeah right? I mean, I, I'm a glutton for punishment. Uh, so <laughs> if the Knicks are playing on a Friday or Saturday night, I do find a way to watch them. I'm a hopeless cause. So, uh, Hence the Desert Fathers. I get it. Yeah, That's exactly right. That, that's exactly right. So, um, so Sabbath is really important, just the, the rhythms of it. And uh, so that's key. Um, uh, another part of my rule of life that I find that has anchored me is... Uh, to have about 20 to 30 minutes of, of silence a day of just set silence centering prayer. And um, it doesn't usually happen in one sitting, uh, but whether it's five, 10 minutes, a couple of times a day um, where I am being with Jesus, not to get anything from Jesus, but just to enjoy his presence. Um, that has been profoundly uh, important. I would say that it's the most important spiritual practice for my life. Um, just just the, the silent prayer that um, I aim to practice on a daily basis uh, is the most important piece of it. Um, I, I'd also add to that um, I, seeing uh, seasonal therapy for me uh, has been an important journey as being a pastor and having a rule that can sustain me. Uh, being a pastor means that I'm often subjected to um, the need to perform um, the need, the, the feeling of, uh, be uh, projections from others and in good alliterative form here, you know, the pace of life. And so that's the preacher talk right here. So <laughs> the, 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 the performance that I have to feel that, I mean, that's a lot of pressure every week. I feel myself and I put on myself often that's unwarranted, particularly in the preaching moment. Um, so there's just that performance pressure, the projections of others, our congregation is very diverse. Um, and, uh, lots of people have opinions and they want particular this, they want that rich here. You're doing, you're doing too much of that. You're not doing enough of this. Um, and so that's just a lot to absorb. And I meet people in the lobby every Sunday after each service, I'm shaking hands and kissing babies and praying with people and hugging <laughs> and all that. And every Sunday as I'm meeting with, uh, 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 shaking hands and greeting the hundreds of people that are coming to our church. Um, you know, it's, I get comments and, uh, and to absorb that and, and not to absorb their projections means I often have to grow in my own sense of self, sense of self-awareness, which means I need outside people who can help me. Uh, so whether it's a, a therapist, whether it's a spiritual director, whether it's a kind of leadership coach, um, I meet with one of those folks each month. Um, because I need all the help I can get. Mm. Uh, so those are, uh, those are some of the aspects of the rule of life, um, uh, limiting, you know, sabbatical. Uh, uh, so a, a rule is not just what's happening daily, weekly, quarterly, and annually, if I build it out that way. Um, but I'm trying to think about my rhythms, my practices, and the relationships that I sense God calling me to. So um, how do I get to the rule? I mean, very simply, um, there are four questions out of the prayer, rest, relationships, and work framework that I just spend time with. What do I need? What does my soul need? What does my family need? What relationships do I need to cultivate? Uh, what kind? What do I need to say no to in this season? 
Uh, and so out of those questions, um, I, I build out a, a rule that is not burdensome, but um, can be sustaining for me for the long haul. you in the game i mean i know it's sabbath rule of life but there are those days where you're just like why am i doing this i mean every pastor feels it what keeps you in the game why haven't you quit yet um i would say um the relationships that have that, that surround me have really been been important um another part of my rule of life that has been incredibly important is there are three pastoral friends that i meet with via video call um, every month and, um, for about an hour and a half. And, um, these are guys that I've known over the years and, uh, we have a call just about what pressures are we facing? What are we reading? What are we learning? What do we need feedback on? And I started that, uh, in the beginning of 2018 because I just, um, uh, or it might've been, uh, maybe, maybe 2018. Uh, I started that because I, I just, I just knew I needed other people and who I can be honest with and share my, uh, particular stressors of being a pastor, um, a, a lead pastor in this role that I'm in. So that's, uh, been an important piece to it. Um, what's kept me in the game? A strong wife has kept me in the game. Uh, who has no problem telling me um, what I need to change and adjust and what I need to prioritize. Uh, Rosie um, is such a strong woman and has such strong values and has no problem sharing that with me in a way that's not, um, not condemning or anything like that, but she's able to, really speak truth and love to help me reassess um, what I should be spending my time on. And um, so uh, her presence has been invaluable um, besides just her encouragement, her ability to speak truth to me and speak honestly to me uh, and undergird me with prayer. And uh, so she's been uh, a, a gift. And then I think the the best gift that Pete has given me beyond just his own mentoring is he's really surrounded me with people and has introduced me to other people. And Pete, he'd be the first to say, I can't be everything to you, but I can uh, try to introduce you to people um, who you need on the journey. And so Pete has helped to connect me with leadership coaches and mentors and uh, people who are, who are specialists in particular, particular areas um, of, in, you know, that I need in my life to get some feedback on um so the way that i'm undergirded um i'd like to say it's because i never miss a a time of prayer and my rule of life is just spotless and i do everything right um i'd like to believe that but that's not the truth it's it's really the relationships around me um and i need multiple relationships around me um uh, to help me on the journey so I, i think that's what that's what keeps me in the game yeah, well, I know that you have you had the opportunity to be on a sabbatical this past year. Um, could you speak a little bit to that? Uh, I know for myself, I'm getting ready for a sabbatical, and would just love to hear some of your thoughts on you know uh, how how you felt going into it, what that was like, um, some things that that you would maybe do differently, and yeah, and just how you feel coming out of sabbatical. Yeah, at New Life. Our pastors get a sabbatical every seven years, and it's three to four months uh, long. Uh, and so I was supposed to get a sabbatical. I've been at New Life for 11 years. I was supposed to get one about seven years, uh, four years ago. Uh, but uh, we did not have an executive pastor. I was still a couple of years into this new role. And there were so many gaps, leadership gaps and staff gaps. that I just thought, if I leave here, I'm going to come back to more of a mess. And I would not be able to rest during that time. Uh, last year, when we brought on an executive pastor uh, who's been phenomenal for us, uh, it was there where I went to the elders and said, all right, uh, I, I am ready to go. Uh, <laughs> and, 
And I said, we'll give her a year in this role. And by next June, I'm ready for my sabbatical. They were all great with it. So going into it, I, um, I, was, I was not burned out. I was not, but I was tired. Um, I was fatigued. And I know I was tired because I, it, it, by when it was like the three-month countdown before, so March of this year, Boy, I mean, I was talking about sabbatical every day to people. Like, oh, I can't wait to sabbatical. I was every day. I was talking about it, and so I just realized, yeah, I, I, I really need this break. And um, and so uh, leading into it, I got really great counsel uh, from Pete, from another one of our pastors, a guy named Peter Roden, who he's had a few sabbaticals here. He's been here over twenty five years, uh, and um, got some great feedback from them in terms of. Uh, how to structure it, what, uh, what should I give myself to? And I used the rule of life framework to frame my sabbatical. And so it was prayer, rest, relationships, and, and, and work. And by work, it wasn't the kind of just typical, obviously I wasn't working, but it was the kind of what am I giving my hands to? What am I, what am I studying? What am I writing? I spent uh, maybe 20% of my sabbatical, 15, 20% of the time uh, working on a book uh, in an unhurried way, just, uh, I write when I feel like it. Um, and so I use that as the structure. Practically what that meant was in June, I started out with a four day silent retreat at a local retreat center here in Long Island. Um, and spent time in prayer, silence, um, reflections. And then for the rest of the month of June, because my kids were still in school to the end of June, um, you know, I was, I was just relaxing. I was napping a lot. I didn't realize how tired I was because I found myself napping a lot. Uh, uh, spending time with my wife, Rosie, and writing a little bit here and there. In July, we had an all-family month where for five weeks, we traveled different places around the country to see my family, to see her family. So Florida, uh, Arizona, California, we spent different times just not driving there, thank God, uh, that would be a disaster. I have a 10 year old and a five year old. I will not do it, uh, ever. Uh, and so July was just family time. August was, that was a lot of work. I just needed to recover from being with, uh, traveling with my, my family for a month straight. And August was, we were kind of New York city tourists, uh, just hanging around the neighborhood, uh, lots of reading, some writing, uh, and then by the uh, end of August, beginning of September, I returned to mid-September, went to a four-day monastery retreat in the Boston area, a place where I go every year, uh, a Trappist monastery, and spent time just in the rhythms of prayer, which helped me come back in, I think, in a, in a centered place. So when I came back, I came back uh, refreshed. I came back with some interior clarity about who I am, who I'm not. What do I want to give myself to in my 40s? Uh, and it, it became clear as day for me uh, what I'm giving myself to um, in terms of with new life, the uh, you know, vision, you know, vision and leadership, preaching and teaching and developing leaders. And that became like, those are the three things I'm going to give myself to. And, uh, and part of just the development of leaders is also in terms of like the content that I want to create in terms of writing and such. Um, so I came back with clarity. I came back with great, uh, rhythms and rest. And, and the best part was the congregation flourished in my absence. Um, I would hear people say, Rich, I missed you. And I didn't miss you. Uh, because we had, um, in terms of pulpit supply, in terms of the, the ministry that was taking place, everything was happening just as it was before I left. And, so, the, so no one even noticed really that I was gone on some level. Uh, but when I came back, I came back really uh, rested and energized and, and clear my soul, which, um, which was a great gift. Mm-hmm. You know, you've touched on this a few times, this Pentecostal charismatic kind of background and then the, the, the draw to the contemplative. And I think some would say that clashes. How does that work? Those are two different things. But you and, and the culture there at New Life, they're really blended well. Talk about some of that that naturally supernatural blending of sort of the charismatic and the contemplative coming together. I yeah, it's a great question. Um, and my first few years were at a, a Latino Pentecostal church. 
So I saw it all, man. I mean, I, I mean, I must have got slain in the spirit at, at least four or five times. You know, uh, I think three times were legit. Two other times, I just, I just <laughs> myself, you know, busted my elbow in the process. Uh, and um, but I saw a lot of uh, powerful things in those contexts. And then a couple, maybe two years into that, so I was still within the Pentecostal uh, charismatic tradition in churches. And then I got introduced to Henry Nowen his works, obviously. And, uh, and then he wrote a book on the desert fathers. And, and for me, I was so new to the whole Christianity thing that I didn't know, like, should things be held together? Should they not be? I was just like, wow, I want, I want all of this. Uh, and there was no one there to say, uh, you can't have that. (laughs) It was like, uh, you can have it all. And the college I went to held these as well. And the people that were there. So, um, I, I mean, I hold it together. I think, I think if someone's going to hold it together, you need to have a high view of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and in terms of, so I, I think all this flows out of a particular pneumatology that says the Spirit of God is present, but present in a myriad of different ways. Mm-hmm. And the life of God is manifested in in power and signs and wonders also in contemplation in silence it's it's god it's god coming it's god coming to elijah and and saying to elijah uh i i god was not in the earthquake not in the fire not in the wind but in the sound of still sheer silence but what's interesting about that is it's not that god was never in the fire or never in the wind or not in the earthquake but for elijah at that moment he needed god as the still small voice or the sound of sheer silence so it's not like no fire, no wind, uh, uh, no, what, what's the other thing I mentioned here, but um, only sheer silence. But it's, not, it's, 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 it's God in all these things here. And I think when people hear the sound of sheer silence or that still small voice, people who are averse to uh, the Pentecostal charismatic kind of tradition would say, no, we got to move towards this side. But then people who are moved towards that side of the trajectory of silence say, uh, God's not in the earthquake, but and God is not saying I was never in the earthquake. He's just saying, Elijah, for you in this moment, you need something else from me. Um, and so I, I think th- those are some of the ways that I've tried to um, hold it together. So on a given Sunday, I mean, I'm believing God wants to heal bodies and have uh, c- give people cathartic moments of encounter. And then at the same time, I, b- I believe in the slow uh, long obedience in the same direction, marked by rhythms and silence and solitude and uh, and all that. There, so I mean, those are some of the ways that I've tried to hold it together. Yeah, and I love the fact that you were too spiritually young and naive to know that. Wait, maybe these don't work together, <laughs> and that what a beautiful gift that you didn't know that, which is wonderful because yeah, we just yeah, absolutely. The challenge was I was taking everything in. So I was, so at one point I was like, word of faith. I was watching TBN all the time. So so I was taking everything in, man. And then I realized, man, I don't think everything belongs. No matter what Richard Rohr said, everything doesn't. (laughs) And I like Richard Rohr. So uh, that that was his book. So anyway, um, I thought everything doesn't belong here. So, Mm -hmm. but I was so naive to your point. In, in a helpful way. Yeah. Yeah. And because you're right. We, we can do this thing with the spirit where we say like we should major in the subtle and minor in the sensational or major in the sensational and minor in the subtle. And we say, no, no, no. We have a robust pneumatology that says we can double major, right? The spirit yeah. double majors in the sensational and the subtle. And I'm so glad that you were able to marry those those two together. So one of the questions that we always ask uh, on this of those that we interview is what lies are you tempted to believe? when it comes to pastoral ministry, what are some of those for you personally? Um, you know, I think, uh, the lie of, um, I am, uh, what I do. Um, that my identity is tied to my performance. Um, uh, that my identity is tied to the, um, the level of approval that I get from people. Um, and whether this is out of 
a sermon, whether it's this comes out of me leading a staff meeting and casting vision to a staff meeting to a, to a staff. And, you know, that's one of the areas that I always feel ina- inadequate in, in casting vision. You know, I, I read all these books about casting big vision and I often feel very inadequate with casting big vision. And so every time I cast vision, I often feel, wow, um, that sucked. And everybody's like, no, that's great. That's great. But that's, that's a lie that says if it's not big and bold and everyone's not jumping up and down, it wasn't good enough. Um, uh, another lie I believe is again, tied to, um, the reactions of others that my it's, it's, it's a self that's, that's self that's reflected on others. It's, a um, and I think this manifested not just in sermons, not just in staff meetings on social media as well. And I didn't mean to alliterate there. That just happened. Um, <laughs> uh, staff meeting sermons and social media, um, you know, on social media, um, you know, I was thinking about, uh, I, I read a, something from Thomas Merton yesterday and um, I just have it here. And uh, there's a quote he said, you would feel like he, he said this in a social media saturated uh, age. It's, it's his book on no man is an Island. And uh, there's a chapter he writes on being and doing. And, and he says, um, uh, uh, in page 121, he says, we must be content to live without watching ourselves live. Um, and we must be content to live without watching ourselves live. And um, I think in a social media world in which we are, um, I am tempted to watch myself live through the reactions, through the retweets, through the likes, through the shares. Um, I've had to, so I believe in the lie that um, if I tweet and it doesn't get favored, did I really tweet, you know, so <laughs> almost like, um, and, and so, um, these are lies that I believe that my identity is tied up in the approval that I get from people. And as opposed to, so, which is why my past, my two pastoral verses that have, that have shaped me is Jesus getting baptized and the father's voice saying, this is my son whom I love and you I'm well pleased. Um, I, I need to return to that regularly. And then my other um, pastoral verse is Colossians 1.17, which says that Jesus Christ is before all things and in him all things hold together, that I'm not holding this thing together. Jesus is holding it together. And I need both of those verses to uh, come against the lies that, um, um, that I'm tempted to believe on a regular basis. So yeah, those are a couple of things that come to mind. My sense is that there's quite a few pastors that also are wrestling with those same kinds of lies. So what what would you say would be like, what practices that you currently do or, or like, is there a specific way that, that, that you balance that those temptations or those lies? Yeah, there's one practice and um, uh, I'm writing a book on this. Uh, so uh, there's a, in, uh, there is a practice of interior examination that I give myself to on a regular basis. And particularly when I'm noticing I'm having disproportionate reactions to something, whether it's a word of criticism, whether it's um, zero response from anyone, um, whether it's conflict, what are the... Uh, there's a practice of interior examination. And in my case, um, I, I laid it out where um, I'm, I'm noticing the interior movements through four or five questions. And whenever I notice, wow, I'm really thinking about that word of critique for a long time, or I'm, I feel like I'm going into a hole because of this conflict. Um, it's an opportunity for me to look within uh, in the presence of Jesus. And here are, the, here are the questions that I ask myself. Uh, first of all, is just what happened? Um, so I'm trying to name what's the event. Um, the second question is, what am I feeling? Um, and so I'm, I'm, trying, to na- I'm trying to name uh, shame, fear, whatever, anxiety. Um, three is, um, what's the story I'm telling myself? Um, and that could be, you know, I'm inadequate, but I just want to live in reality about what's the story. Um, four is, what's the gospel say? 
And um, you know, what's Jesus say? What's the, what's the gospel of grace say to this moment? And then five is, what is the counter instinctual act that I need to do in light of this? And the counter instinctual act, in my case, is often tied to me um, sharing uh, my struggles with someone because I typically, I can, I can hold things close to my vest very easily. So whether it's my wife, whether it's a counselor, a friend. So those five questions. Um, now, I don't do those every day, but when I notice that there's a disproportionate reaction that is somewhat debilitating, um, I try to go to those questions. There was a season last year where I did, I did these almost every day because I was so emotionally fragile. And I just noticed that. Uh, and I needed to... Um, Name those questions. I did it from almost over a month straight, almost every day. I got, I'd get an email from someone, you know, you get a, and it feels like a little zinger, a little, uh, and I'm like, oh man, that hurt. Uh, and I'd go down the hole. And so those five questions, and to be honest, I, after doing it for about five, six weeks, um, I've had to do it less and less because I think I, I started getting free from some stuff. Um, and this is not a replacement for therapy, but, but I think I was experiencing God's divine therapy through this process um, of making space for this kind of interior reflection and examination. Mm. That's great. And before we, before we leave you here, what's the title of the book? When is it supposed to come out? Um, what's the release date? Give us some more information on the book itself. Yeah, I'm excited for this. Uh, it's called The Deeply Formed Life. Uh, we're still working on a subtitle for it. Um, uh, so hopefully within the next month or so, we'll nail that down. It's, it'll be coming out September 15th, 2020. And the thrust of it is I am trying to uh, expand our vision of spiritual formation to encompass um, things like race, things like sexuality, things like justice, in addition to things like the spiritual disciplines, prayer, interior examination. And so there are five values, if you will, that flow out of our congregation. These are our five congregational values, but I'm giving, I'm using language that anyone outside of our congregation would um, be able to understand. So it's contemplative rhythms, racial reconciliation, interior examination, sexual wholeness, and missional presence. And I'm going to be talking and writing about those five elements as uh, what I envision as a paradigm for the church in, um, in this generation. Mm. That's great. Well, I know you and I have talked about that and writing is hard. It's vulnerable. There are a whole new set of lies we're tempted to believe as an author that are sometimes similar, but even very different to being a pastor. But Doug and I are really grateful for you carving out some time to be on here today. And we could have kept talking for another three hours, but uh, because I've never had a mediocre conversation with you, Rich. It's always been uh, rich for lack of a better word. So really grateful for you. Thanks for joining us here this morning. Thank you guys. Thanks for having yeah. me. Thank you. JR, I think the most punchy statement that I heard Rich say, and there was a ton of them, but yeah. was the only, the one way you will be fired from this church is if you do not keep Sabbath. Yeah. What a gift. Oh my goodness. To set the tone when Rich came in. Uh, I mean, and Pete's gone through his own journey, you know, yeah. as he talks about an emotionally healthy uh, spirituality, but man, what a tone setter, huh? I, I can't even imagine. I mean, I remember, uh, I feel like there is some, there's something, and this has been a theme throughout almost every interview we've done, um, whether it's a full-time pastor or someone who's working in, uh, like in, in, uh, you know, a network of churches or just people who are spiritual directors, but the importance of Sabbath just continues to be like galvanized in my thinking yeah. and so grateful for being in a community that not only encourages me, but expects that of me. Yeah. Um, it's just, I don't think, I don't think I realize what a, what a gift that is. Yeah. And there are a lot of pastors that would say that it, the opposite applies, like their elder team or a senior pastor says, the only way you get fired is if you keep a Sabbath. You, like you, you should be working all the time. Now they wouldn't say it that way necessarily, but that there's this expectation that you will work. And why would you do Sabbath? And 
So that pressure is there. And so I feel for some of our listeners who may be in that cultural space, like that may be the ethos of the church that they're in right now is you must work and no, you can't rest. And I know you had a similar experience on staff of your church. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it's hard because again, pastoral ministry can, is such a tricky thing because it can, it never really begins and never really, I mean, it begins, but it never really ends. So there's always something to do. Yep. But I think I, I think in terms of uh, and maybe maybe it's maybe it's men and women our age we've seen a lot of the this is what happens when you don't and I, I really do think you know one of the things that's so difficult is when you work in a situation where where Sabbath is not a priority it, it I, my my sense is very it it might be very um, it might look really good on the outside. Uh, and it may have a lot of activity, but my sense is leaders and pastors will burn out quickly and it'll become more more and more of dramatic burnout stories, right? Not just, yeah, I just had to quit and I got a job somewhere else, but, you know, I blew up my family. Um, you know, I had an affair. Uh, I, you know, ran, uh, started, you know, using drugs and alcohol to just to to cope with all the busyness and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've never seen a a burned out pastor who practiced Sabbath faithfully. Mm. I'm sure they're out there. I just have never come across them. Um, and so when a pastor burns out, I word my question very intentionally with them. I'll say, tell me about your Sabbath. And I always know the answer. And the answer is always, I, I don't, I didn't have one. I don't have one. Um, yeah, I just have never met somebody who burned out who also practice Sabbath regularly. Um, yeah, I was on staff at a, a large church and I said, Hey, a non-negotiable was I, I need to practice Sabbath. And the pastor looked at me and said, why, why would you do that? That's so old Testament. And, um, so yeah, I mean, you and I are passionate about this. We believe in this. This is important, not just for our own health and sanity. I mean, it's obedience, right? I mean, it's one of the 10 commandments. And so sometimes when I've preached on the Sabbath, I title the sermon title, nine commandments and one suggestion, because for whatever reason, we think the other nine are commandments that we live by, but that somehow the Sabbath, oh, that's in our technological age, that doesn't really apply, that doesn't work, really work in our culture today. Why do we treat that one like a suggestion? If it works, great. If not, don't worry about it. But the other nine, we would never say, well, if it works not to murder, okay, that's fine. But yeah, if not, you know, don't worry about it. Right. Right. Like we just don't ever <laughs> apply the other commandments the same way that we do when it comes to the Sabbath. Yeah. Well, and even the fact that I don't think anyone would ever look at somebody on a church staff and say, you're being disobedient. Right. Right. I mean, people were stoned. People were killed for not practicing <laughs> Sabbath in the Old Testament. I don't know. I understand there's the new covenant and Jesus right, is a right. new word. But I mean, God took Sabbath seriously. This is not a suggestion. <laughs> it's, and I hope this is of loving, faithful, uh, graceful encouragement to you as listeners, not legalism. Because right. when I first started it, it felt legalistic. But then I realized, oh, this is an incredible gift that God wants to give to me. Right. <laughs> I didn't see it at that, that way for a while. But when I did, I'm like, thank you, God. This is what you mean by your burden is light. Uh, your yoke is easy preach. and your burden is light includes practicing Sabbath. Yes. And it became a real gift. Yeah, it's interesting because um, he mentioned something about you know, when I asked him about sabbatical, he was like, yeah, I'm really, you know, I, I was really looking forward to it. I, it, it had to be at the right timing, but th- I'm, and this, this will be my second sabbatical in tw- in just about 20 years of ministry in 2020. Um, but what's interesting is my first sabbatical, I, I would tell you, I was on the brink of burnout. Wow. I mean, I, lit- wow. I, I remember sleeping for two full days straight and it was hard. And, and I'm going to tell you right now, entering into, entering into the season of sabbatical right now, I think what's really cool is when you practice Sabbath, you're not mostly, I would say not everyone, but most people are not on the brink of burnout, but they sense how tired they are. And yeah. there's a huge difference between being tired oh, and yeah. burned out. Yeah, I almost chuckled when, uh, when Rich said that because my coach, who's helped over 50 pastors through sabbatical, he said, Jared, here's what you need to remember. Here's what's going to happen. He said the first week, he said, you're going to be so tired. You're going to sit on the couch and after 10 minutes, you're not going to be able to get up because you're so <laughs> tired. I'm like, what? And he, he said, you're going to think you have mono. You're going to think I am so tired. Something's wrong with me. And he said, don't go to the hospital. Don't go to the doctor. 
He said, you're just coming off of like an adrenaline crash. You're so addicted to adrenaline. You don't even know it because it's been so normalized. I'm thinking, yeah, right. And the the thing is he was wrong. I sat on the couch for five minutes (laughs) and tried to get up (laughs) and I couldn't get up because I was so tired and I thought I had mono and I was, I, I just was addicted to adrenaline so badly. And I thought, I mean, I wasn't burned out. You remember, right, I, yeah. I was like, I wasn't even asking for it. You right. all extended it to yeah. me. I'm grateful. I thought, well, I don't really need it. I think that was my first yeah. response in the elder meeting. Thank you, but I don't think I really need it. Yeah. And yet, man, did I need it more than I ever thought. And so some of you pastors out there that say, well, yeah, I'm kind of up for a sabbatical, but I don't really feel like I need it. Listen, firsthand experience. I said the same thing. That was the first thing out of my mouth. Thank you very much, but I don't think I need it. Little did I know that just like my coach said, I was so addicted to adrenaline, I thought I had mono. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, and I think that's what's so, I, I just, I, I just, if, if you're an elder of a church or you lead an elder, you know, you're part of the eldership team or whatever, I just want to commend you for churches that recognize the importance of that for the pastors. Yeah. Um, that is, it's not an easy thing. I mean, you are inviting it's not just something for the pastor but it's for the entire church yeah and um yeah i think too one of the things that is really interesting is i really appreciate the way that uh rich talks about the rule of life yeah um and even wondering too you know we're right around the right around the you know the the 2019 2020 change and and what would it look like this year if we began and i really appreciate the four things but what would it look like if we looked at prayer rest relationship relationships and work as the spaces of of seeing the the a congregational rule of life or a personal rule of life um i just i know for me the rule of life stuff has been i don't know if i could live without it at this point in time mm. um but even just wondering jar would you have any thoughts or suggestions for pastors or leaders who are thinking wow that sounds great where do i start yeah, I mean, I think what Rich said was fantastic. I, you and I were both taking notes on this of those four areas you mentioned, prayer, rest, relationships, and work. I think just even asking the questions that Rich submitted to us, like, what do I need? Mm. What does my soul need? Mm. What do my relationships need? What does rest, what do I need in terms of rest? What do I need in terms of work? I think all those were just wonderful questions. And so just starting with need um, I think is a wonderful thing. So yeah, I mean, those, I think we can even submit those questions to our listeners here as we end with questions and resources of what do I need? What does my soul need? What do I need in terms of rest, in terms of relationships, in terms of work, in terms of prayer? Start there, start there, start simple. And, and I think Rich would agree with that. I love, you know, when he said 20 or 30 minutes of silence every day, I think some of our listeners were probably like, what? I can't even do mm. two minutes. But I love that he said, I don't do it necessarily all at the same time, five or 10 minutes here, five or 10 minutes there. And so even if it's just one or two minutes here, one or two minutes there, we just want to submit that to our listeners. I mean, that could be as simple as I'm going to pull my earbuds out on my walk to the train. I'm going to turn the radio off in the car. I'm going to maybe even turn this podcast off to just spend a couple minutes with the Lord um, in the shower, whatever it is, those little moments throughout the day, how can we redeem those moments that already are there if we're just applying a little bit of intentionality just to say, Lord, I'm here, I'm listening. What do you have for me? So any other questions that you may have, uh, Doug, before Uh, we get to resources? You know, I, you know, I, I think there are just so many of them. <laughs> just listen back to it. Uh, I think that's, you know, there are just so many other things, but yeah, I can't think of any other questions. Um, yeah. Actually, maybe this, what are the internal and external challenges? Yeah, good. Um, I thought that was a really helpful way to begin to think through what's happening in my soul. You know, is this an internal thing? Is this an external thing? I thought that was helpful. Yeah, good. Good. And, you know, as far as resources, he mentioned several things. You know, he mentioned Henry Nouwen. I'm mm-hmm. a fantastic, fantastic author. If you're not familiar with him, you need to become familiar with him. Henry Nouwen, uh, the late uh, Catholic priest, um, fantastic writer. He mentioned Thomas Merton, but we'll put in the show notes as well. Pete Scazzaro's books, The Emotionally Healthy Church, The Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Emotionally Healthy Leader. Um, all those are fantastic. Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, that whole movement. Um, and we'll put the website in the show notes as well. They've got books. They've even got a podcast. They've got events in New York. So if you want to go up and check out what they're doing in New York, uh, fantastic, fantastic place. Um, and two passages of scripture. Rich mentioned First Kings 19, the story of Elijah and uh, the sound of sheer silence, how God showed up in the midst of that. And he also mentioned Colossians 1.17, that it is Jesus who holds 
all things together. And that was a really freeing thing for Rich. And I want to encourage you all as you're listening to this um, to look up, maybe even memorize Colossians 1.17. Also, if you want to follow Rich, we'll even um, put his Twitter handle in the show notes as well. So, uh, Doug, why don't you send us out here uh, this uh, today? Yeah. Uh, I'm stuttering. Yeah. It's all send good, us man. Out here we today. stutter here. That's that's why we do this thing live because we don't. Well, you know what, pastors, don't feel the pressure like you have to be polished. May you remember that even in the midst of all the stuff that you do, it doesn't really matter in the long run because what matters is that God loves you and that He's using even the stumbling words of our lives. He's using the stumbles of the things that we struggle with in all the different places, this beautiful opportunity to grow into his image. And I'm grateful that God never wastes a thing in our life, but in the hands, in his hands, he redeems them and he calls us and draws us into more of his presence. May you go in the knowledge that you are dearly loved children of God and that you have been given this beautiful, beautiful gift of extending that love to others. 